It is well with my soul. That song don't make sense. I, I mean, to, to the whole world, that song does not make sense. It's, it's a song filled with this contrasting idea of the turmoil and the tumultuous world in which we live. But Christians can say, even so, it is well with my soul. That, here's the deal. Without Christ, that don't make sense. In Christ is the only way that makes sense. And, and I, what, a, what a great song to introduce us to our new sermon series, our new study this morning. We are introducing a new sermon series. This week I was speaking with Brother Jeff about the, the work of preaching. And I recall one preacher who used the illustration of drilling for oil, like an offshore rig, as a metaphor for preaching. And this preacher was commenting on those who would come to the pulpit and preach only a 15-minute sermon. If you're visiting with us this morning, I hope you're not expecting a 15-minute sermon. This preacher, using this metaphor, said, well, if it takes 10 minutes to set up the rig, that would be introductory thoughts and, and introducing the sermon. But if it takes five minutes to tear the rig down, so application and closing remarks, then in a 15-minute sermon, there's no time for deep drilling. There's no time to drill the depths. Taking that metaphor a little further, Introducing a sermon series through a book of the Bible is much like what comes even before setting up the rig, much like the engineering, the preparation, which comes before the whole project. The nature of preaching through an entire book of the Bible is that the deeper looks into some particular texts are helped by the things which came before what we consider in one sermon is aided by the study which came before and what we examine in one sermon helps those things in the future. And the introductory thoughts set our expectations and lay out a plan for the whole endeavor of studying through a book of the scripture. That's why it's important as, as we introduce this sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, that's why it's important for us to be present at each and every sermon in the series. That's why it's important for us to pay attention all along the way so we will gain, so that we will glean as much as we can. This morning we do begin our systematic study through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of the poetry books in the Bible, and it's located in your Bible with the other poetry books. Those poetry books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So if you find Psalms, that's the big book in the middle. Hang a right, and you'll come through Proverbs, and you'll get to Ecclesiastes. Um, this book of Ecclesiastes is widely misunderstood and therefore often neglected. And I believe that is to the harm of God's people. And as we study this book, we can hope to get a better understanding of the message of the book and the purpose that it fits into the scripture. 
Though we will not have every question cleared from our mind, we will be directed to Christ as our only hope in this fallen world. And we will be instructed as to how we are to live as God's people sojourning in this strange land. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Let us bow our heads and pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Great God of Scripture, we pray that you would guide us today and in the coming weeks as we peer into this inspired portion of Scripture Give us, Lord, a scripture-based and a Christocentric view of this world where we live now. Give to us a constant eye toward the redemption which you have purchased and the final consummation of your work when there is a new heaven and new earth, when all things will be set right. Help us in this study of the book of Ecclesiastes that it would be for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Today, as we introduce Ecclesiastes, we will consider the author of the book, the time of the book, some key elements of the book, and the purpose of the book. Having a good overview will help us. It will help us immensely as we seek to study and to, to glean from the prophet that is here, the prophet that is contained in this book of Scripture. At the outset, I want to remind us that there is prophet in Ecclesiastes. P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophet. There's stuff to be gained here. The Pauline epistle to Timothy teaches us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All scripture is profitable. And we know then that the book of Ecclesiastes is God-breathed and profitable scripture. We also believe, as our confession states, that all scripture is not alike plain in themselves. They're not alike clear unto all. So there are some things we need some help with. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of these and we need as much help as we can get to understand and clarify what this book is teaching. There's a lot of bad ideas about Ecclesiastes. We don't want to get those. We want to have God's guidance in this. So the first thing we look at is the author of Ecclesiastes and there are disagreements among theologians of, as to who the author of this book is. And maybe that comes as a surprise to you. It came as a surprise to me when I began to study this book. I always believed that the author of the book of Ecclesiastes was Solomon. And I still believe that. <laughs> uh, we'll see why. Uh, but 
but some have decided that this does not sound like Solomon. There's, there's a word that is used that is not a word that, that was common in Solomon's day. So how could this be Solomon? I, I personally have no trouble believing that Solomon, who had extensive interactions with people all over the world, learned a word from a different area. And so I have no problem believing that this is Solomon. Uh, to help us identify the author, I want you to believe that as well. So let's read this first verse of scripture that we have here in chapter one, verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we know that King David had a son who assumed the throne, king in Jerusalem. And that son was Solomon. So point one for Solomon as the author. Then, if you'll look, and we're going to be moving, keep your Bible open, we're going to be moving throughout the book today as we look at some of these things. Look down, chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Increased in wisdom more than all who went before you. There's one person in all of human history who comes to mind when we say wisdom more than all who were before. That person is Solomon. As a matter of fact, I believe that the divinely given wisdom which Solomon possessed was more than all who came before him, more than all men, women, children who came before him, and more than all who would come after him. Solomon is the wisest man who has ever lived, and I believe that title will never be claimed by another mere man. Continuing our quest to identify the author, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The preacher says this, I enlarged my works I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants. I had homeborn, uh, I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. So much here fits with the life of Solomon. Houses, vineyards, cattle, horses. What we read as we read the Old Testament, the count of horse stables that Solomon, it's something, I'm, I'm going from memory, it's something like 7,000. It's unbelievable. So, so many of these things fit with Solomon and his riches and what he has done right down to many concubines. This fits with Solomon. So then finally, flip over to chapter 12 and we'll read verse 9. Chapter 12, this is a 12 chapter book. While you're turning to chapter 12, let me say this. This book of Ecclesiastes is only 12 chapters. And it's 12 chapters that can be read. I think on Wednesday night we decided it could be read an hour and a half. It, it could be read in a very short time. I know uh, it may be difficult for some of us who are not accustomed to reading long texts of Scripture to sit down and read the book of Ecclesiastes in one reading. If you can, I would suggest it. 
But I definitely want to encourage each of you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. It amazes me how many times people say, Pastor, would you suggest something for me to read in my personal Bible study? What I suggest is that you read in your personal Bible study what we are preaching through on Sunday mornings so that we will be much better prepared and we will get more from the preaching of the word. So read Ecclesiastes. It has only 12 chapters. We're going to read chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. And we remember that Solomon, the author of the book of Proverbs, certainly did arrange many proverbs. All these clues bring me to the conclusion that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. And I will just add that I stand in good company believing that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. There are, there are some men who I have respect for who don't believe that Solomon is the author, but uh, I don't respect him for that. Just others. So we consider the author secondly, and just briefly, we want to consider the time of Ecclesiastes. If Solomon wrote the book, then uh, this is going to shock you. The book had to be written during Solomon's lifetime. I, yeah, duh. And, and since we read that he had already done so many things, he had already built houses and vineyards and gardens and ponds, and he had already gathered so many riches, he'd already done all of these things, then we must also conclude that the book was written near the end of his life. So this is written in Solomon's lifetime and near the end of his life. Next, so we've considered the author, we've considered the time. Next, we need to consider a couple of key elements. And what we're doing this morning is we're just introducing the book of Ecclesiastes so that we can really dig in and get going in this next week. But we need to we need to consider a couple of key elements, a couple of key things. First, we have in verse two this word translated vanity, vanity of vanities. The word is and I, I'm not uh, a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar, and I try to abstain from uh bringing Greek and Hebrew into the pulpit. Um, I, I think this is interesting though, because this word is Habel. If you know a guy named Abel, it's the same word as Adam, as Adam's son, Abel. It's the same word, the same pronunciation. Um, Habel used 38 times in these 12 chapters. It, it, it's it's important that we understand this word used 38 times in these 12 chapters. If we're going to understand uh, the book itself, we need to know why this word is important. We need to know how it is used. This word is translated. It's used elsewhere in scripture. It's translated as meaningless, as empty. It's translated futility and uselessness, vanity. We have in chapter 1, verse 2. But it's also translated in other areas as breath. I some think this word is kind of an onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeiatic? I might have just made that word up. Uh, do we remember what an onomatopoeia is? Bang! 
Onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is. Bang, pow, onomatopoeia. Some, some people think this word is an onomatopoeia, havel, because it's, it's mostly air. It's mostly, it's mostly a vapor. It's mostly just there and gone. Uh, this word is translated in Psalm 144.4 as breath. Man is like a mere breath. It's defined, this breath, it's defined as the unit of air that passes out of the lungs through the mouth or nose with a focus on its briefness. With a focus on its brevity, its lack of content. It's also translated vapor. And I think it, as we understand how this word is used in Ecclesiastes, it, it can make a huge difference how we understand the book as to how we see this word being used. If the word means worthless, then the message of Ecclesiastes is that life is worthless and meaningless and life is futility if that's the message, then why wouldn't we avoid this book of Ecclesiastes? Because it's just a fatalistic work. Or, or if we studied the book, wouldn't we walk away looking at life with despair? Now, I don't see that. I don't believe that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us. And I don't think that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless. I think we find reality. We can better understand the use of the word in Ecclesiastes by understanding how it's translated as breath or vapor. Uh, think about just as you go out on a cold morning. And isn't it wonderful? I mean, we just came off some hot, hot days. And isn't it great that things are cooling off? And before too long, we might be able to walk outside on a morning and breathe into the and see your breath. Can't wait for that morning. It'll only be, if you're new to Texas, it'll only be one day. <laughs> it'll only be just the one, just the one morning. But we love those times when you can see your brother, you can see it. It's there for a brief second and then it's gone. It's a vapor. And the preacher gives us that picture of vapor. Life is a vapor. All is vapor. And this agrees with James, who said in James 4.14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. What is life? What is your life? It is just a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. See, that's not only taught in the book of Ecclesiastes, that's taught elsewhere in Scripture. I've shared with some of you my uh, thought, my illustration of steam. Steam, it's nothing really. You release steam into the air, into the atmosphere, and it dissipates. It's gone in a second. You cannot hold on to steam. You cannot save steam. You can't bottle it up. I tried to bottle steam one time, and when I came back, there were only a few drops of water in the bottle. Uh, you can't bottle it up. You can't hold on to it. You can't grasp it. But does that mean that steam is of no value? Steam is a value. I, I recently got a new hat. 
And I watched as this hat, which was shaped very generically, open crown, flat brim. I watched as the man shaped the hat. You know what he used to shape the hat? Steam. He steamed the hat and shaped it and it held its shape. The steam was there for a moment and it was gone. But while it was there, it was very useful as he shaped my hat. Well, that's not a powerful example, but think about other more powerful examples like a steamboat or a steam engine. Incidentally, I, someone asked me about catechism and uh, I said catechism is a teaching method by using questions and answers and it can be used to teach anything and then I was Googling to find examples and I found the catechism of the steam engine. Interesting read, very interesting read. The catechism of the steam engine. Steam, steam is valuable. Steam serves a purpose. This thing, this vapor is fleeting. It's ungraspable. Yet for the time that it is, it has value. It has use. Brothers and sisters, life is like steam. Life is a vapor. It is fleeting. It's not something that we can grasp, something that we can hold on to. But for the time that we have, there is some value, there is some use. Now, this should keep us, as we, as we consider what Ecclesiastes tells us about life being a vapor, this should keep us from thinking too highly about our life. How important, how important is your life? What did you do yesterday? What will you do tomorrow? Whatever it is that you do with your life, it is a vapor. Whatever you do tomorrow will not matter in a hundred years. And for many, it won't matter in a hundred days. Life is a vapor. So we shouldn't think too highly of our life and what we do. But also understanding that life is a vapor, that life is like steam. It should keep us from thinking too lowly of our life. Just as steam is powerful and useful for a brief moment, so is your life. God has given you a brief time on this earth. Just a blip in the grand scheme of things. But life has power and usefulness for that brief moment. Don't waste your days. Scripture tells us to redeem the time. Life is a vapor. As we read Ecclesiastes, it's important that we understand this word rightly. It's, in, it's important that we read the book rightly. Life is a vapor. We also see in Ecclesiastes the term under the sun used over and over and over again. There are other recurring things, but these are the two that jump out primarily under the sun. And we need to understand as we read, as we study Ecclesiastes, that this is referring to human life. Uh, this is not commentary on plant life, animal life, on land and sea. This is, this is a commentary on human life. It's pointing to us to human life on earth. And more than just human life on earth, we see that this book was written and is commentary on life on earth after the fall. It's written in a fallen world, two fallen people living in that fallen world. 
Some have even divided the book of Ecclesiastes uh, kind of in an outline form and, and said that it comments on the first chapters of Genesis, taking us through creation, the garden, and the fall of man. And I think there's, there's definite application there to that. So as we read life under the sun, it carries with it the connotation, not only human life, but human life, fallen human life in a fallen world. So now we come to the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. The purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. This also may surprise you. Some commentators, some theologians have completely discounted Ecclesiastes as having no or almost no purpose, no value for the Christian today. It's in your Bible, but they would say, well, you don't need to waste your time reading. Maybe you've heard of C.I. Schofield. Schofield's study Bible has been the most widely circulated study Bible for more than a century. And some of you thought <laughs> your particular study Bible was very popular. Schofield's study Bible, as far as I know, was like the only one available for like a hundred years. Schofield's study Bible was very popular, circulated all over the United States. It was for many people the only commentary, the only notes that they had on the scripture. And the Schofield Study Bible was a tool for, was not a, was the tool for many a preacher to teach and preach to his congregation. Now that would be great if the Schofield Study Bible didn't have some problems. Now listen, my grandfather had a Schofield Study Bible. I've probably owned the Schofield Study Bible through my lifetime. Uh, but we need to understand the, the parts that are the inspired word of God in that Bible are the inspired word of God and the other stuff. By the way, that applies to the Bible that you hold in your hand. If you have notes in your Bible, that's not God's word. There's God's word probably at the top and then there's man's notes at the bottom. That's important for you to remember, even if they're good notes, okay? I remember we had a lady, you'll remember, she had a John MacArthur study Bible and she loved John MacArthur and she loved her study Bible. I had great respect for John MacArthur, but she would say, Pastor, my Bible says, and then she would read me something that John MacArthur had written. And I would say, no ma'am, your Bible does not say that. John MacArthur said that. I'm just making this point. It's an important point. It's an important point. Study Bibles are great for what they are. They're not the Bible. They are man's notes added to scripture. Okay. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. Probably shouldn't say stuff that's not in the notes. The problem is, as Schofield's study Bible was circulated, it had bad teaching that was, because it was the only resource infused into many Christians by way of this study Bible. Some of these bad teachings are things like the gap theory of creation. If you don't know what that is, praise God. It, the gap theory of creation was taught in the Schofield Study Bible. And, and most notably, and the most popular thing is dispensationalism, which was taught in Schofield's notes, even though dispensationalism is not found in Scripture rightly interpreted. Amen. I'll say it if nobody else will. Schofield also commented on the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's a bit of what he said. 
This is the book of man under the sun. Reasoning about life. It is the best man can do. Inspiration sets down accurately what passes, but the conclusions and reasonings are, after all, man's. That those conclusions are just in declaring it vanity in view of judgment to devote life to earthly things is surely true. But the conclusion is legal. The best man can do apart from redemption and it does not anticipate the gospel. He goes on to say, these reasonings of man apart from divine revelation are set down by inspiration just as the words of Genesis. Let me read that again. The reasonings of man apart from divine revelation are set down by, divine, by inspiration just as the words of Satan in Genesis 3 and Job 2 are set down. What Schofield is saying here is that this book has no value for Christians. This is only man's wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. He admits that God has included Ecclesiastes in the Bible as an accurate depiction of man's wisdom, but that in the content of the book, there is no eternal truth. There is no value to the Christian studying it. And the writer does not even anticipate the gospel. So we don't find then, according to Schofield, that the preacher has any hope for salvation. What an awful view of the book. And no wonder so many Christians have come to Ecclesiastes and just decided, let's skip it. Why wouldn't we skip it if it's only man's, if it's only man's wisdom? Why wouldn't we just skip over it? Or, or some coming to it in their read through the Bible in a year say, we're just going to knock Ecclesiastes out in one day, get that over with, so that we don't have to spend much time there. Brothers and sisters, we rob ourselves when we neglect the book of Ecclesiastes. I flatly reject this conclusion that, that there's no wisdom of God in Ecclesiastes. We, we need for a moment, though, to understand Ecclesiastes, we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to drop the Christian Sunday morning, put on your Sunday best and, and put on that facade. We, we need to drop that charade for just a minute, maybe for longer than a minute. We get the ideas by speaking to some people that the Christian life is all rosy and sunshiny. This is where the book of Ecclesiastes helps us. This is what Ecclesiastes does for us. It helps us to see reality. I get sick of people speaking about Christianity as though, as though it's the solution to everything, to every woe. I remember, I'm sure. Uh, I remember the, the clearest example of this that is, that is just atrocious happened in a vacation Bible school at a church where I was on staff at, where one of the youth leaders stood and spoke to the children and said, come to Christ. He will fix all your broken toys. 
What an awful thing to say. And to say to children. But those things get said in a different way to adults. And often we eat it up. And often we live our lives saying the same thing. Look at how wonderful. Okay, we got to move on. I remember an old joke about what happens if you play country music backwards. Maybe you know what happens if you play country music backwards. You get your house back, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get your wife back. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I, I found that very funny. Listen, that's funny, but I've heard that same sentiment expressed as the gospel of Christianity. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be sunshine and roses. Everything's going to be burgers, fries, and cherry pies. Everything's going to be beautiful. Christians are just walking in the sunshine, singing a sunshine song all day, every day. We hear that. And that is not the truth. When we're honest, when we're honest, can we just say this world is bent out of shape? This world is messed up. This world is crooked. So quickly look at chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. This world is messed up. And Ecclesiastes just shows us. This is what the world is like. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight that which he made crooked? Who can straighten what God bent? Not, not only, Christians, is this world bent, but the bent and the crookedness of this world is in God's sovereign will and plan. God has placed us by the, by the whole of Scripture. He's placed within us a sense of justice and right. And we look and we say, this is how things should be. This is how things ought to be. We see the problems and we see the bent nature of the world. We get that throughout scripture. And God has put within us a, a sense of eternity. And for Christians, a longing for the day when things will be finally right. Finally, when things will be put right, when things will be set right. We long for that day. But in Ecclesiastes, we ask and answer the question, how are we supposed to live life knowing how things should be, knowing that they will one day be set right, but right now we live between the fall and the final judgment. How do we live in this messed up, bent world? The preacher has written to us, but it's God's message. This is not Solomon's word. This is God's word. It's Solomon's message. It's, it's, it's God's message. It's God's word. Turn to chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Just as when we read a letter from Paul, we say, yeah, that's Paul's writing, but this is God's word. What we're reading here, this is Solomon's writing. This is God's word. Chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. 
And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and nails fastened by a master, the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. These words, the words of Ecclesiastes, these come from one shepherd. It's not David. It's the great shepherd. This is God's word. And I think this gets us close to the purpose why Ecclesiastes is in the scripture. I've carefully crafted this statement of purpose for Ecclesiastes. As we consider life in this fallen world, we bow in reverent fear before God, submitting to his commands and living in the enjoyment of the good gifts which God has given in this life, keeping an eye to the consummation of eternity and final redemption. That's how we're supposed to live. And Ecclesiastes is going to suss that out for us. The name that Solomon calls himself in this book, the name that we have translated in verse one as the preacher, as well as the name of the book itself, gives us the idea of a gathered assembly and Solomon is addressing this gathered assembly. So as we enter into a study of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, and all the people of the world come into the assembly and he begins to speak to us. He writes in light of the fall of man, but knowing that there is the promise of a savior. One of the things that he says in Ecclesiastes is there's nothing new. There's nothing new. Boy, don't we, we, we say that, right? And we need to understand these things as proverbial. There's nothing new, but friends, there is one thing that was new. One thing that was new under the sun, unlike any other thing in all of human history. What is that one thing? The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the God-man. And you and I can find value in reading and in studying Ecclesiastes, but we praise God that we don't stay in Ecclesiastes. We read it, we learn from it, but then we read it in light of the gospel. We read about the vanity and the vapor of life in Ecclesiastes, and then we go to Romans, where we read, that creation was subjected to hubbub, futility, vanity, because of him who subjected it. God is the one who, who subjected it. Let's read that together. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read this and then we'll close. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. We'll read through verse 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's our word, havel, to vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he has already seen, in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Right here from Romans 8, this puts us where we need to be as we study Ecclesiastes, waiting eagerly for Christ's return. This is the conclusion when all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray again that you would guide us and help us as we study through this inspired book that you have given us. Guide us, keep us in your truth, grant to us wisdom. Apply these things to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name.